Good morning. First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse number eighteen. If you want to find that in your copy of God's Word. While you do, I'll tell you about a guy for whom I used to work and grew up in uptown Whittier back in the 30s and 40s. And I can remember him talking about going out to see his aunt in your Belinda. And from uptown Whittier, they would drive down Painter to Whittier Boulevard where there was a, a stoplight. They'd turn left, go all the way out Whittier Boulevard to Harbor where there was a flashing light. They'd turn right on Harbor and go down to Imperial where there was a stop sign and they turn left and, and go out to Yorba Linda. And I've never been able to imagine what that might have been like until this morning <laughs> because I hit every green between East Whittier and here. In fact, I got to Fullerton faster than I get to La Mirada Monday through Friday morning. So um, anyway, I love coming out here. <laughs> And I get to see you on top of it. Uh, but while I was driving, I was thinking about today, which is May 1st. Is that right? May Day, <clears throat> which for uh, the old Soviet Union was the day on which they pulled out all the military hardware, uh, donned the brass, and showed to the world just how powerful and strong they were. Well, we're going to do the same thing today. Except our strength in Christ comes by way of just the opposite. It comes by way of his suffering. And so that's what we'll see in part here, in large part, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Please stand with me as I read this passage for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as, a, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the re resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thus far God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Most of us here have a pastime that we especially enjoy. Uh, maybe it's playing ball, maybe it's cooking recipes, maybe it's uh, traveling across the country or overseas. Our enjoyment of these pastimes generally overshadows the, the trials or the tedium or the tension that accompany them all. So people who enjoy playing ball are willing to endure the scheduled practices and the off-season workouts and the uh, fatigue and exhaustion that comes with strenuous exercise. I remember when I was in high school and I came home one night from football practice and I was so tired. 
and I fell into bed at 6.30 at night. And I didn't wake up until 6.30 the next morning. I was wiped out. Those who enjoy cooking recipes are willing to uh, endure the tedium of detailed instructions and uh, waiting between steps and standing for long hours in the kitchen. My family and I enjoy uh, a program on PBS called Cook's Country. And I have to remind myself every time we watch Cook's Country that the ease with which these dishes come, come together has more to do with video editing than it does a one, two, three step recipe. I mean, <clears throat> somebody's got to make the dough, right? And then knead it out and put it in the bowl and let it rise and then pull it out and knead it again back in the bowl, let it rise pull it back out, cut it up, put it on the tray, stick it in the refrigerator. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Ah, tedious. Those who enjoy traveling overseas, uh, well, the tension begins upon arriving at the airport, right? And you hope that that bag is not over 50 pounds, lest you have to lay down more money for your bag to go. I, I recently flew from point A to point B, and got a great deal on a ticket, only to arrive at the airport, and the lady said, okay, you're ready to go, put your bag over here. I stuck it on that, uh, you know, scale. I said, have you paid for your bag? I said, well, I bought a ticket. She said, oh, but you haven't paid for your bag yet. And I, my bag cost almost as much as me to fly from point A to point B. Well, then you've got, of course, uh, wade your way through the x-ray machine with the shoeless and beltless masses. And then you uh, jockey for a front row seat during open, open seating. And, and then you get on the plane. And I don't know what it is about hurtling through space at 500 miles an hour, 35,000 feet above the earth, and a chair that is supposedly designed to keep you comfortable. But I find it absolutely exhausting. At least that's been my experience over the last almost 40 years. But not only do we endure these pursuits, not only do we endure them, but we love them. And we love the trial and the tedium and the tension because of the end game. Be, because of what it is we're after. So we love the sweat of athletic practice because it heightens the thrill of victory. We, we love the tedium that comes with a recipe because it heightens the enjoyment of the dish, right? We love the hassle of jet trip. Nobody uh, loves the hassle of jet trip. <laughs> But at the very least, it heightens our appreciation for arriving safely at our destination. In fact, without the end game, without the hope of something more, the ongoing and unforgiving trial and tedium and tension of any one of these pursuits would quickly eliminate any joy and turn each one into a living nightmare. Uh, I like to mow the lawn because I like to finish product. But I remember my college roommate saying to me, his vision of hell uh, 
was mowing the lawn and never finishing. <coughs> so it's important to remember the end game, the goal, the hope of something more as we come again this morning to the book of First Peter. Because this letter reminds us that the trial and the tedium and the tension in some are suffering and especially are suffering for Christ is at one level or another the experience of every Christian. But as we've already seen in the section leading up to this one, a Christian suffering reaps dividends when someone by whom he or she was opposed glorifies God because of their good conduct. We begin to see that in chapter 2, verse 12, on through the balance of chapter 2, on into chapter 3, and now as we come uh, to our passage this morning. In fact, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Peter says to the members of his audience, when, when somebody speaks evil against you, don't bully them, bless them instead. In fact, he says in chapter 3, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, which according to chapter 3, verse 17, may in fact be God's will for you. We don't think of suffering for Christ in that way, do we? But it can be his will for you. Suffer righteousness for Christ's sake, you will be blessed. And that's nothing to sneeze at. You're welcome. So two weeks ago uh, at La Mirada, Fred Sanders <clears throat> uh, showed us how Peter might have responded to his own teaching in word and deed when called upon to suffer, even unto death for the sake of Christ. So there is a, a rendering of Peter's uh, death as we traditionally understand it, upside down for the sake of Christ. As for word, next slide, verse 17 may very well have been on his lips as he was crucified upside down for the sake of Christ. And as for deed, next slide, there we go. He kept his eyes, as it were, on God and away from Nero, the man by whom he was being crucified. But there's a third component that can be added to this image. If what Peter was saying is contained in that speech bubble that was coming out of his mouth, and seeing is contained in that designated field of vision toward God, away from Nero, um, there's a, a, a third component that uh, could be included in a thought cloud. And here it is, the beginning of verse 18. Christ also suffered. Christ also suffered. Up to this point, this has been a strength-giving point. When Peter was being crucified upside down, he could remember and find strength in the fact that Christ also suffered. When his audience was being grieved by various and fiery trials, tested for their faith, tried by the passions of the flesh, insulted for the name of Christ, they could remember and find strength in the fact that Christ also suffered. 
Further, when they were suffering for doing good, resisting the murderous advances of the adversary, wrestling with all kinds of anxieties, all these things Peter addresses in this letter, they could remember and find strength in the fact that Christ also suffered. And when we face these things, and others as well, we can remember and find strength in the fact that Christ also suffered. In fact, our passage this morning is, is very similar to the one on which Jackson preached a few weeks ago. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, Christ is described as the one who suffered as our pattern or our example in suffering. And that, that statement is a strengthening thought. So if we suffered as Jesus suffered, described back in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, in that, we too can find strength in the midst of our suffering. Uh, Jackson does a great job of unpacking those verses. If you want to hear him do that, just go to gracebfree.org, go to the sermon page, find that sermon, and uh, drag the cursor to the 33-minute mark, and you can hear Jackson uh, speak about that in detail. But here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, Christ is described not as our model, not as our pattern for suffering, but rather as the one who suffered and thereby became our victor over sin, the conqueror over death. Now that, to be sure, is strength-giving, but beyond that, it's also hope-giving as well. So, in, in, in our passage here, like a good journalist, Peter unfolds this thought in the following way. He talks about the when, the who, the why, and the how. That Jesus became victorious over sin and our conqueror over death. So when you leave this morning, you need to remember that it's, it's not enough that Jesus gives his suffering people strength. I mean, he does. But it's also important to know that Jesus gives his suffering people hope. There's a future as well. Peter is very clear that suffering is not all there is. The trial, the tedium, and the tension, they, they, they are moving us somewhere. All that stuff with which we grapple on a daily basis is leading us toward a glorious finale a happy end, a day on which suffering will be entirely eradicated. And so let's take a look and see how that's possible. To begin, there in verse 18, we'll notice when that was made possible. So it says there in verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins. Throughout the Old Testament days, there were many, many, many sacrifices. But on the day when Christ was crucified, the need for any more sacrifices was entirely alleviated. And so Paul writes, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, Romans 6.10. The author to the Hebrews states it like this, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews chapter 9, 
26 through 28. That's why the reformers could no longer perform the mass. Because uh, it was then, as it continues to be now, a supposed bloodless sacrifice in which Christ is offered again and again and again for sin. But the word here tells us Christ suffered once for sins. June 25th, 1995 is memorable for me because it's the day on which the floodgates of my memory opened up and every evil thing that I had ever thought or, or said or had done came rushing back to the forefront of my mind. And that continued to happen for the next four years. And it was relentless. I'd wake up in the morning in mid-memory of some terrible thing that I had either thought or said or done. And it was tiring, and it was demoralizing, and it was fatiguing. And what's interesting is that <clears throat> while there were, to be sure, some big-ticket items swirling around in that toxic mix, the sins that I found to be most heinous were the subtle ones, the deceit, the, the callousness, the laziness, the disregard, the thoughtlessness, the calculated sins of the heart that are common to the fallen human condition. Well, friends, I would have done anything to have those things purged from my brain, expunged from my heart. And I felt then, uh, I felt then maybe the way some of you do this morning. I felt like Lady Macbeth. Remember that? Holds up her hand. I still have the smell of blood on my hand. All the perfumes of Arabia couldn't make my hand smell better. And then from the depths of her person, she says, oh, oh, oh. But according to our passage here, then and now, all that stuff had already been paid for. The smell was gone. The record books, in fact, had been wiped clean 2,000 years before when Christ suffered once for all. And that's the thing that I was encouraged to tenaciously cling to and, and relentlessly rest in. And I did. And uh, kind of like a little kid who's lost in a department store and finally finds his parent, you know, throws his arms around, holds on, even though the trauma's over, even though the incident's passed, continues to hold on, that's exactly what I did. And in doing so, I found that my guilt was assuaged, my fears were relieved, and my grip began to loosen, and I started to rest in that glorious fact. Maybe you need to do the same thing this morning. Christ's sacrifice, once for all, totally sufficient. You don't need to do 
anything more other than rest in it. Another reassuring fact that suffering will be eradicated is seen in who suffered to end it. Again, take a look at uh, verse number 18. Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is righteous. We are not. And that's why Paul famously wrote that God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A person who is drowning you know, can't throw himself a life preserver. Somebody who's dangling from a cliff can't throw themselves a rope. Otherwise, they do it, right? And as ones who are naturally dead set against our creator and cannot turn ourselves around, we must be set straight by somebody else. And that needs to be Christ. And what makes this especially beautiful is that in Christ, you have the intersection of both justice and mercy. Because on the one hand, God requires the execution of justice for our sins, while on the other hand, he is the only one able to meet that requirement. Years and years ago, uh, there was a grad student at Biola University who needed to finish his thesis. And uh, back in those days, all theses were typed on a typewriter by a professional typist so that when the uh, professor read the thesis, there were no mistakes and it was easy to grade and uh, it, it was ready to go to the, uh, to the uh, company that, that bound the thing. Well, he couldn't find a typist. And it came to the day before the thesis was due, still no typist, went to the prof, explained his situation, to which the professor characteristically replied uh, with unbending conviction that the due date was, in fact, the following day. And so the professor asked the student, don't you type? And the guy said, no, I don't type. He said, well, don't you know somebody that types? He said, no, I don't know anybody that types. And so the professor said, in an act of, of mercy, that was just as characteristic for this fella as his unbending justice. He said, then give the thesis to me. I know how to type. It'll be in tomorrow. Now there's more to that story, and you can ask me afterwards. But the point is this, to meet his own just requirement, the professor mercifully was willing to do for the student what he could not do for himself. And in that same way, Jesus, the righteous one, did for us, the unrighteous, what we could never have done for ourselves. Because we know who suffered for our sins, the very Son of God himself, we can be sure that our suffering for his sake is not in vain and will be eradicated on the last day. But Peter also goes on to explain why Christ suffered. And he did so, again there in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. 
No one can go directly to God. You have to be brought to God. No one can go directly to the president of the United States. You have to go through the proper channels and be brought to the president. You can't go directly to the uh, Queen of England. You have to be brought to her. I remember one January, I, I, I asked a friend of mine what he had done over Christmas break, and he said, oh, I went to see Billy Graham. <laughs> I said, oh, who do you call and ask to see uh, uh, Billy Graham? And he said, oh, you don't ask to see Billy Graham. Billy Graham asks to see you. Like, oh. He went through the proper channels and was brought to see the well-known evangelist. In fact, not only does Christ bring us to God, but he's the one who makes God known to us in the first place. Unless the creator reveals himself to his creatures, there's no way for them to even know he's there. So in 1921, a playwright by the name of Luigi Perandillo wrote a play called Six Characters in Search of an Author. And the plot is basically this, a family of sorts, at best a dysfunctional family, <clears throat> wanders into a play practice and the father informs the director that they're looking to meet an author because the one by whom their stories had been written had written them in an incomplete fashion. And they wanted the story uh, brought to closure. They, they were, in a sense, searching for themselves by searching for him. Well, Six Characters in Search of an Author is an absurdist play. It, it unfolds in this illogical progression. It ends with desertion. It ends with death. And it communicates that the creator cannot be known by his creatures. Forty years later, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. If there is a God who created the world and created us, I could no more meet him than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare. If Hamlet wants to prove there is a Shakespeare, he's not going to be able to do it in a lab, nor is he going to be able to find Shakespeare by going up into the top of the stage. The only way he will know something about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. And in Jesus Christ, God wrote himself into the play of human history and as such became the one, the only one, who can bring us to God. That's why the scripture says that through him, that is Jesus, we have access to the Father, Ephesians 2, 18. In fact, only through him does anyone come to the Father, John 14, 6. And that's why there is no other name given among men and women whereby you can be saved, Acts 4, 12. So the when to Christ's suffering is once, 2,000 years ago, your sin and mine. The who to Christ's suffering is the just for the unjust, God for man. The why to Christ's suffering is so that he can bring us to God because we have no other way of getting to him. So we finally get to the how. Peter explains how Christ's suffering makes this all possible. And you can take a look again at verse 18. Now down to the end. 
being put to death in the flesh, Christ was made alive in the spirit. Death in the flesh, alive in the spirit. So one, one scholar puts it like this. Christ's death in the flesh plus being made alive in the spirit equals salvation. Two historic acts, one saving action. So the answer to the question, which is more important, Christ's crucifixion or his resurrection, is uh, yes. They're both equally as important. But what, what does it mean here when it says that Christ was made alive in the Spirit? And then some of these verses that follow, very challenging. Um, Ed Clowney, the late Ed Clowney down at Westminster Seminary, wrote something like this. Uh, to be sure, these words were eminently clear to the original audience, uh, but have now been lost in their understanding over the ages. So, you know, something like that. Well, by the time you get to the Reformation, Martin Luther is, uh, finds him to be almost inscrutable. And yet, uh, he, here's the way that most Bible readers down through history have understood these lines. So follow with me. That Christ was made alive in the Spirit means that upon his resurrection, he was raised to the spiritual realm. The one through which he had been ministering down and throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, we see that this ministry occurred through the prophets. And our passage shows us even as far back as the days of Noah, when God specifically proclaimed righteousness by way of the ark builder. And we'll see that in detail next fall when we get into 2 Peter. And salvation by way of the ark. And he proclaimed these things to those who are now in prison, that is spiritual prison there in verse 19. But in Noah's day, we're living in disobedience to God, though still with a chance to be saved. That's, that's in verse 20. Well, Peter tells us that God proclaimed this message with great patience. But neither God's preaching nor his forbearance through Noah lasted forever. And there finally came a day on which the ancient floodwaters filled the earth and rightfully judged the disobedient by taking them down to death and mercifully saving the family of Noah by raising them up to life, relieving them from their suffering, rescuing them by way of their faith. Now, notice what Peter makes of this ancient story. He, he saves it from our 21st century grasp, which takes it and puts it in the children's department. In a way whereby Noah is like this ancient Dr. Doolittle, and the animals are his smiling, uh, flannel graph, seagoing companions. That's not the way Peter thinks of it. Notice beginning in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that is the story of Noah, salvation of God's people by water, which otherwise would have killed them. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, in other words, not as a religious act, but rather as an appeal to God for a good conscience through, through what? Not, not what you've done, 
No, through the, res- through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has, and I'm going to add here parenthetically, been put to death in the flesh, thereby conquered the wages of sin and the ultimate effects of suffering, and was made alive in the spirit, back to the text, and gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the thing that gives us not only strength, but hope. Hope for the future. To be sure, Christ also suffered. He suffered in life. He suffered in death. But that led to his resurrection, his ascension, and finally his glorification, thereby making a way for us to follow him through the floodwaters of this life and on into the next. And the beautiful thing is that by his word, he shows us the way. And by his spirit, he encourages us along the way. Years ago, uh, some of you know Paul Gussif. <clears throat> Paul and I, uh, and my dad used to backpack every summer. And this one summer, we uh, backpacked from... Mineral King, which is on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains, up to a place called Monarch Lake. And I'll always remember the day on which we began that hike because it was beautiful and the, the trail was very forgiving as it switched back and forth and uh, spirits were high. We were having a good time. But as, as the day wore on, that trail became narrower and narrower and narrower until Paul and I lost the trail. And my dad, because we were lagging so far behind. We stopped, we had lunch, and uh, then we continued on. And as we got into the afternoon, the altitude began taking its toll. Uh, As I said, the trail was gone, so at this point it was just skipping from boulder to boulder. Uh, The happy conversation that we had enjoyed in the morning had dissipated into silence punctuated by periodic complaints. I mean, it was rough. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, and without any fanfare, there's my dad. There's my dad. And Paul and I blurt out, where have you been? (laughs) What happened to the trail? Where are we? To which my dad Uh, calmly replied, boys, don't worry. I've been there. I've been to Monarch Lake. I've come back to get you. Follow me. And you know what? We were still whipped, but uh, hope swelled within us. (laughs) And so we followed him everywhere my dad put his foot, that's where we put our foot. Every turn he made, that's the direction in which we turned. He didn't take us the easy way. He didn't carry us. Paul and I were almost 30 at this point. I mean, it's not like we were 12. (laughs) We were men. Didn't take us the easy way. We suffered along through every step in which he had suffered, but with hope, because he'd made it. 
And we knew that with his guidance and his help, we could make it too. Please bow your heads. Maybe this morning you are trying to uh, mop up your sins. But that's been done once for all. Maybe this morning you're trying to do it. But uh, brothers and sisters, God did it for you. Maybe this morning you're trying to get to God. Well, you can't. But the good news is Christ has already made a way. And it's time to rest in God's finished work, freely given to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so the question that I want you to think about here for just, just a few seconds is, are you resting in Christ? Or are you working your way to God on your own terms and in your own strength? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son who knew the way of suffering is with us this morning to help us in that same way. May we find strength in his example and hope in knowing that he has already reached a safe end, the very end toward which he is leading and encouraging us. May we find joy in that journey and honor and glorify him along the way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.